There's certainly an aspect of the Old Testament saints like Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and others who model certain aspects that are commendable. There is a vast untruth in that cultural understanding of Christianity. Namely, that Christianity exists to help good people get better because the reality is is that there aren't good people. Everyone has serious, serious problems in the Bible. And all we have to do is read long enough and think deep enough to realize why God would ever pick any of these people to do anything with them. They're a bunch of riffraff and mess-ups. And this morning, we're going to see a significantly messed-up family. And God's gracious purpose to continue the line of the Redeemer through them. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Isaac. And the next three weeks, we're going to try to take a look at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph one at a time. So one sermon on 20, one sermon on 21, and one sermon on 22. And a similar theme runs across all three of them. And that is that their acts of faith are demonstrated in their dying. If you look at those verses, you'll see that. That Jacob, for instance, as we'll see this morning, was near death when he blessed his sons, Jacob and Esau. Verse 21 points out that Jacob, when dying, blessed the sons of Joseph. And then Joseph, in verse 22, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus. So these acts of faith that we're focusing on all look to the future, an unknown, unseen future, and they all occur at the death of the one doing the blessing. So that's sort of the similar theme through verses 20 through 22. But this morning, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in Hebrews 11. We're actually going back to the Old Testament to look at the story that Hebrews 11:20 is talking about. So if you will take your Bible and go to Genesis 27, that's where we're going to be for the most part this morning. Genesis 27. And this is a sad story. It's pitiful. It's pitiful. But it highlights the grace and sovereignty of God like perhaps no other. Everybody, every single major player in this story comes out looking bad. Every one of them, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, Their sins are found out and God reveals the whole incident to the world and keeps it in his word for all time. But he uses even this to magnify his sovereignty and his grace. So a little background before we get into Genesis 27. Who was Isaac? Well, last week we saw that he was the promised one to Abraham and Sarah, their son, now, we, we pick up with Isaac in, in uh, chapter 27, and he's very, very old. And his wife, Rebecca, two chapters before in Genesis 25, is barren, much like Sarah. And Isaac prays to the Lord on her behalf, and she conceives twins, Jacob and Esau. More about them later. And he was 60 years old when they were born. Now, it's important to note that God told Rebecca that she, when she was pregnant, that she would have twins and that Jacob, the second born of the two twins, would be the promised one through whom God's promise would continue. We see that in Genesis chapter 25, verse 30, no, verse 23, chapter 25, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So very clear prophecy and oracle given to Rebekah and Isaac that Jacob would be the one through whom the promise would continue, not the firstborn, which was typically the custom. So Esau's born first, and he's a red, hairy kid, as we know. And Jacob comes out second, clutching the heel of Esau, which is where we get the name Jacob. The name means takes by the heel. It can also mean he cheats, which is an, uh, shows up in chapter 27. So Esau's an outdoorsy woodsman kind of guy. He's uh, described in the Bible as a skilled hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob's a little more bookish. He's quieter, dwelling in tents. He likes to hang around his mom a lot. Isaac loves Esau because Esau makes him some great food from what he catches out in the field. And Rebecca loves Jacob. Already we got some problems in the family. Favoritism doesn't get a family very far. The problems get complicated at the end of chapter 25 as Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for some food. He liked the food just as much as his dad did. And Esau comes in one day exhausted and he's starving and Jacob got his birthright from him for some stew. And it continues in chapter 26 to describe more details about Isaac. And we pick up the story at the end of Isaac's life in chapter 27. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want us to look at the sin that is in each one of these characters, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau, and what we learn from them. And then I want to conclude by looking at the main character in the story that, that is God himself and what he's up to in the midst of all this sin. So first of all, let's look at the sin of Isaac, okay? Chapter 27, verses 1 to 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son? And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, if you knew what we talked about, the oracle that was given to them at the, when, when, when Rebecca was pregnant, no doubt Isaac had to get, get wind of that. Then what we see here is Isaac's deliberate effort to remain committed to the custom to bless the firstborn. He is going to bless Esau, no matter what the oracle said. He's going to give his, the blessing, the promised blessing from Abraham to Isaac. Now to Esau, he's going to pass it on. And he's attempting to thwart God's plan. His intention is to bless his favorite son. But Esau is joining into the deception, right? Because he has already sold his birthright. And he's just complying with his father's wishes. So whether Isaac knew about all that was going on here or not, certainly Jacob or certainly Esau knew. He knew that something was up, that his father is wanting to bless him 
when he sold his birthright at the end of chapter 25 to Jacob. So here we have two people, Esau and Isaac, conspiring to disobey God and conform to local custom rather than obey what God had said. But the incredible thing is that Isaac is doing the exact same thing that Esau is doing. He's exchanging something spiritually significant for some food, isn't he? That's what Esau did with Jacob in chapter 25, and Isaac's doing the same thing in chapter 27. These two men are incredibly worldly and unspiritual. But God's plan is not about to be thwarted through their sin and disobedience. Our sin does not nullify God's purpose to do what God's going to do. And that's clear throughout the rest of this chapter. So at the very beginning, we get a guy, Isaac, no doubt knowing the oracle that was given in 25, and yet determined still to bless his favorite son, but that's not going to stop God. Jacob will be the one blessed, even through the massive sin of this family. So that's the first sin we notice. Let's look at the second one, the sin of Rebekah. Pick up at verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. There's a little, uh, you know, paying attention, eavesdropping a little bit. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I'll... I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Now stop right there. Now let's give some Rebecca the benefit of the doubt a little bit, all right? She heard the oracle. She knew that Jacob was the one who was supposed to be blessed. So she is determined to make sure that happens. Now her heart is all messed up. And the way she's going about it is totally wrong. But she at least is trying to obey at least what she sees that she heard from God when she was pregnant. But she's sending up a storm to get it to happen. Picking up at verse 14. So he went in and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Now, Rebekah is trying to get what she wants through massive deception, just like everybody in this family. There is no trust in this family at all. They're isolated and alienated and operating out of their own selfish desires and seeking to fulfill their own plans, what they want to have happen. She wants Jacob blessed. She overhears the conversation. She dresses up Jacob like Esau. She makes some food and she sends him in to be blessed by Isaac before Esau can get back from the field. Now, this is a lesson we learn from this story. Taking matters into your own hands is a bad thing. It's a bad thing. 
Proverbs 3, right? Verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Is that what's going on here? Not at all. There's no faith here. There's no trust here. It's trust in myself with all my heart. That's what she's doing. Don't acknowledge the Lord. Make my own path straight. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Lean not on your own understanding. She's cooping up a plan, cooking up a plan of deception to try to get what she wants. And that's never going to take you where you want to go. So that's the sin of Rebecca. Next, we see the sin of Jacob being complicit in the whole operation, picking up at verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. There's a flat out lie. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? I mean, it takes a long time to go hunt, find an animal, skin it, kill it, or probably kill it before you want to skin it, and then cook it up and prepare it and bring it in. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Blasphemy! Attributing to God his own lie. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. And no doubt Jacob's thankful that his dad's blind as a bat at this point because he's going to have to maneuver specific body parts to make sure he feels hair. Then Isaac said to Jacob, verse 21, please come near that I may feel you, my son. Verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. No doubt he's panicking then. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Another bold lie. Then he said, bring it, to, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So Jacob gets the blessing just as God said he would. And as we know, the theme of deception is running straight through the story. Rebecca's trying to deceive. Jacob's trying to deceive. Isaac's trying to deceive. Esau's trying to deceive. But what, what's highlighted here is Isaac's utter and complete deception. In fact, all of his senses are deceived in this passage. Think about it. He's going physically blind, so his sight is deceived. His taste is deceived in verses 19 and 20 when he expects game and instead he gets goat. His hearing is deceived. I think I hear the voice of Jacob, but I th this is Esau. His touch is deceived when he lays his hand upon Jacob's hand. 
And his sense of smell is deceived in verse 26. As he smells the garments of Jacob. So he's thoroughly deceived. His sight, his hearing, his taste, his touch, his smell. So really they're all deceiving and they're all being deceived. Jacob, Rebecca, Isaac, Esau are all caught in a web of lies and deception. Driven all by their own selfish desires. Isaac and Esau have to sneak off by themselves to hatch this plot for Isaac to give Esau the blessing. And Rebecca, meanwhile, is eavesdropping. Then she pulls Jacob in to plot their own strategy. I mean, no one in this household trusts each other. No one is seeking to do what God's will is, at least with a pure heart. And we know Jacob is being a deceiver, but just let me tell you, he's learned it from a lot of professionals. He's learned it from his dad and his mom. That strikes close, doesn't it? As parents, there are little eyes and little hearts watching us. And they will learn what we do. Now we see Jacob's sin displayed, and it's not a pretty, pretty sight. He implements a plan to deceive his own father, and for all Jacob knows... Who, for all Jacob knows, is on his deathbed. So he invokes the name of God, as we saw, lies to him repeatedly, and like his mother, doesn't trust in the Lord to provide for him. And we must not make any excuses for their behavior. Their behavior is not appropriate. Just because God is working through this situation does not make this sin any more heinous and wicked. In fact, in some ways, it makes it worse. Because God told them exactly what to expect and what they should expect would happen. And yet, no doubt, throughout the life of Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Rebekah are scheming and planning for how to get what they want done. There was an enormous cost to their sin, especially to Jacob himself. So let me just give you three examples of how Jacob's sin here brought consequences into his life. You'll see that at the end of this chapter, he has to leave the promised land and sojourn in a strange country for 20 years. He essentially leaves a rich and wealthy household to go live basically in abject poverty, working for Laban, his uncle. And Laban deceives him over and over and over again concerning Leah and Rachel. So the one who is the chief deceiver in the very next couple chapters becomes the one who is deceived over and over and over again, a consequence of his sin. So by God's grace, God often, so often overcomes sin in our lives, but there's always a consequence to it. We should never, ever, ever excuse our sins by saying, oh, well, God will make it right anyway. We can never be presumptuous like that. And God loves Jacob enough to not let him off the hook for what he did. And Jacob bears the marks in his body for years to come. In fact, for the rest of his life for what he's doing right here. I mean, he set himself back decades. Getting kicked out of the house, having to go live as a refugee, be deceived for multiple, multiple years, end up in a bad marriage. All as a result in part due to his deception here. So that's the sin of Jacob. Let's look at the sin of Esau. 
picking up at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, no doubt he got out of there fast. (laughs) Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I've blessed him. Yes, he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh, my father. And he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What then can I do for you? My son Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing? My father bless me, even me also. O my father and Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. But your short, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau comes home, finds his blessing stolen, taken deceitfully, and then he goes nuts. He goes nuts and he asks for another blessing. Weeping, wailing, crying out bitterly for Isaac to bless him as well. I mean... He responds with rage. And we're not going to read the end of the chapter, but it ends with Rebekah getting wind of Esau's intentions to kill Jacob and send send Jacob away to be with her brother Laban and Haran. This This is a terrible, terrible, terrible text in terms of revealing the depravity and wickedness and sinfulness of our hearts as people. This passage, especially with the sin of Esau, is the classic expression between what happens when we have remorse and what happens when we have repentance. Because you know Esau is held up in Scripture as the one who sought repentance, sought it with tears, and yet couldn't get it. His heart was sorry But he was only sorry when he didn't get what he wanted. The root of his bitterness and anger is that he didn't get what he wanted. That's what the root of his anger is. And that's not repentance. That's remorse. Everybody's not repentant when they get caught. In remorse, we're sorry for our sin. We're sorry that we got caught. We're sorry for the consequences. But we don't see our responsibility. We don't see the true sinfulness of our sin. And we don't see, ironically, either the mercy of God. And so Esau goes from rage to a plot to kill. 
and for the rest of his life, at least up until the point where he encounters Jacob again, he is caught completely by his own sin and anger and bitterness and rage. What a sad situation. What a sad family. What a sad thing that it came to that. I mean, here's Isaac, and this is his family. A wife that doesn't trust him. A husband that doesn't trust his wife. Two kids that are at each other's throats, vying for the coveted spot in their parents' affection. Their parents contributing to that dissension by feeding it over and over and over again through the years. And Genesis 27 ends with this family broken up, Isaac on the verge of death, and this is the last thing he's going to see. Realizing he's given a blessing to Jacob in the midst of a web of deception that he himself started with Rebecca alienated, with Jacob alienated, with Esau alienated. And there's his dying scene. And everybody comes out looking bad. Isaac resisting the will of God. Esau being an utterly carnal and natural man. Rebecca, though she rightly knows the line of grace, continuing through Jacob, nevertheless resists her husband, usurps his authority, overthrows his dignity, lies along the way in order to establish her own agenda. And Jacob implements the deception the whole way. Now, this story reveals one thing. There is one hero in the Bible, and it ain't any of them. It ain't any of them. It isn't Isaac. It isn't Rebecca. It isn't Jacob. It isn't Esau. It's God, and it's his grace. That's the hero of the story because there's another character at work here behind the scenes, and it's God himself. And this passage is all about God's undeserved favor his grace toward Isaac and his family. Now let's go back to Hebrews 11:20. We're done with Genesis 27. So back to Hebrews chapter 11. Now let's read verse 20 again in light of what we just considered the last 25 minutes or so. 11:20. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And if you're paying attention to that story, you've got to be scratching your head saying, what? How can that be? By faith? Where's the faith? This is all anti-faith. There's no faith in Genesis 27. Or is there? Well, let's go back to our definition of faith, all right? In Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith has this future aspect to it. There's a conviction that is an assurance that the things that are hoped for will come to pass... And that the things not yet seen will be realized. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, there's the assurance of things hoped for. It's not going to happen yet. It's out in the future. It's unseen. It's unrealized. And then verse 39 at the end of the chapter, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So faith has this aspect where we're looking to the future and what God plans to do based upon what he has said. Now, is that present in this chapter? Yes, it is present in Genesis 27 with Isaac. Because Isaac does take his blessing seriously. God told him that the promised line is going to continue through him. And he takes that seriously. And he's exercising faith based upon what God told him, or at least told Rebecca when she was pregnant in Genesis 25. Now he's sinning in the process, but he's also demonstrating true faith. Though it is clouded and muddied by so much sin. Here's what Peter O'Brien says. Isaac's faith was not focused on a known future. Isaac died without having experienced the fulfillment of those promises. And he saw their realization with the eyes of faith and he greeted them from a distance. Here's what Ian Duguid says. What a tragic picture. A man at odds with his family who were all out to get from him whatever they can. Yet Isaac, for all his sinful motivation, is still commended for his faith. That may seem a strange commendation at first sight. What faith was it when he sought to counteract the revealed will of God? The answer is that although Isaac's faith was mistaken in its direction, it was solid in its heart. Although he was wrong in the one he sought to bless... He was profoundly right in believing that there was a blessing to be transmitted. He believed God that one day the promise delivered through Abraham would bear fruit in the lives of his descendants. And it's on those terms that he gives his blessings. And that's no small act of faith on Isaac's part. This is who we are. We are a mixture of sin and faith. And oftentimes our sin messes up our faith. But if faith is there, faith is there. And it's there. Isaac knows that there's nothing he can do to bring about God's promised blessing. Now he's trying to do it through Esau, but he knows that if God promised it, God's going to do it. He witnessed that with his parents. I mean, no doubt Abraham and Sarah shared with him from very early on, son, let me tell you how you came into the world. And he saw it, he witnessed it with, when he was on the mountain with his father. Saw his dad's faith. And yet here, so, so much sin. But there's also glimmers of hope that we get from Genesis 27. That Isaac is a man of faith. Though plagued with much weakness and sin. Isaac's repentance. Did you notice it? When Esau comes in and he realizes what he's done. He trembles violently, it says. When he's confronted with the reality of what's happened, he immediately admits defeat before the will of God and he confesses that God's will is going to be established with him or without him. With him or against him, God's will will be fulfilled. So we already begin to see the workings of the Holy Spirit in Isaac's life and in his heart toward the full repentance that this section 
does not realize. But Isaac owns up to it. So faith means doesn't always mean that we always get it right. But it does mean that when we get it wrong and we sin and we blow it, that we own up to it without qualification. We also see Isaac's resilience and not cowering before Esau's demands. He gives him what he gives him, which is not so much a blessing, but a curse. There is blessing in it, though. But it's also not the blessing that Jacob received. He refuses to cower before Esau. He's not going to thwart God's plan a second time. So in spite of the sin and the bitter fruit that comes in the wake of sin, God's purpose to bless his people is eternally fixed and secure. God is at work and he will not let them go. In spite of their sin and even through their sin, God can and will achieve what he has planned. And what does he plan to do through this family? He has planned to bring his perfect promised redeemer, not from a picture perfect lineage of holy people, but from the offspring of a long line of desperate sinners. And this redeemer that's going to come from the line of Isaac and Jacob and pass down and eventually come into the world as the Lord Jesus Christ stands in stark contrast to the other characters in this scene. Unlike Isaac, who seeks to thwart God's will, and unlike Rebecca, who sought to find a way for her own will to be done, Jesus stares the cup down at the end of his life and willingly lays aside his will. In fact, he laid aside his will in eternity past. And he came to earth, not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent him. Willingly for our eternal good. I lay my life down of my own accord and I take it up again. And unlike Jacob and Esau, who sought to steal blessing and avoid curse, Jesus took the path where he would experience the curse so that we would receive the blessing. Jesus took our curse so that we might inherit his blessing. He was the one who deserved the blessing. And yet he willingly subjected himself to the curse that was owing to our sin so that we could be blessed and adopted into the family as children of God. The curse that Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, you, and me earn for ourselves every day through our manifold sinfulness was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the blessing, which was rightly his, might be given to us, his undeserving people. Jesus, God the Father, his purpose of grace, is the hero of Genesis 27. Not Jacob, not Esau, not Isaac, not Rebekah. It's God and his purpose of grace. Like I said in the beginning, there always is an element of example that God's people have, whether it be Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, or even in the New Testament with Paul, John, others that hold out their lives as a model. And Paul even encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10 to look to the Old Testament saints as examples and in, and in Romans 15 as well. But... 
But, but remember, they are not only examples in their goodness, but they're examples in their wickedness. And their goodness is not meant to serve to us as a mirror by which we evaluate our morality so that God might accept us. Rather, it's to see what God's grace produces in wicked people. And the hope that God can make me a decent human being too. <laughs> by his grace. And, and the wickedness is not meant to, set, to be propped up in front of our face. And we look at it and we say, hey, I'm not as bad as them. God's going to let me in. Rather, it's meant to say, if God can save them, he can probably save me. If God is so gracious toward Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau and their whole family and doesn't abandon his purpose of grace and say, to hell with that family. I'm going to try to find a new family. Well, if he looks, he's going to find the same brokenness and the same wickedness as he finds in that family. Because that's the way it is since the fall. And the point of the Bible is to show us that no one is beyond the hope of the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. No one. No one. I want to close with the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, recounting his own wickedness and his own need for a redeemer. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there are some of us here this morning who believe that we are unsavable, that we have messed up too badly, that we have blown it too many times. And we ask that through your spirit this morning and your word, you would give encouragement to those people, that they would know that you are a God who is patient and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, slow to anger, compassionate and gracious, but yet you do not leave the guilty unpunished. So they must come to Jesus. Father, grant that this morning for any who are here with us this morning who are outside of Jesus Christ. May they be drawn savingly to him. For those of us who are believers who are resting right now in the work of Christ for us, help us to never be afraid to bring our sin to you. To own up to the fact of what we have done or to pretend that we, we are really better than we are. As many of us meet in our community groups this afternoon, help us not to put on a face like we got it all together. Help us to be transparent with each other, acknowledging our brokenness and sin because the Bible gives us permission to do so. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.